1: happy guy
0: Then he
1: ate a molded pumpkin pie then he thought that he just couldn't die so Ned he laughed so hard
0: Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-448 of the Run Run Live podcast. How we doing? Here we are, flipping the page to February, February of 2021. How about that? Big news from my side of the world, that being New England, is the cold. Cold, cold, cold. It was zero degrees Fahrenheit this morning. And I just got back from seven-ish miles in the woods with Ollie. We waited until after lunch, and the temp came up to, you know, a little bit over 20. Nice day, sunny, windless, but cold. And it's really good running in the trails right now. With the freeze, the ground is nice and hard. We got a couple of light snowstorms earlier in the week, maybe three to five inches of fluffy, cold snow. And with so much traffic in the trails these days, you know, pandemic, it's all packed down and hard and fast. It's like paved. And it's only icy where the springs come up. And I know where all those are, so I can pick my way through pretty easily. I had a pretty good week of running, coming off the end of the infected toe episode. The antibiotics cleared the infection up. And I took about a week off. But I was back on it last week and this week. I bought some silicone toe caps. Google that. Silicone toe caps to protect that toe while it heals. But I discovered that they work really well for me. For some people, they fall off. But for my big toe, because it's so giant, like a, like a planetoid, they fit great. Nice and snug. And they keep the toe safe. I think I might use that going forward for my ultra distance training to keep from losing that toenail. So I got back to training. Had a pretty good weekend despite the cold weather. Friday I did a set of long hills in the cold which were awful while I, were do- while I was doing them. I felt like I was just crawling. My legs were so dead but when I looked at the data that was a decent effort and yesterday I did a long 16 plus miler in the trails and most of it was pretty sucky <laughs> but that's how ultra training is. you got to get to the point where you go, oh, this is awful. And they go, oh, yeah, that's right. It's supposed to be awful. And you run until it sucks, and then you run some more. That's the name of the game. And Ollie and I knocked out another seven just now. So that's, what, close to 30 miles in three days? That's encouraging. I didn't take Ollie yesterday for the long run. I thought it might be too cold for him. I didn't want to hurt his feet right? I'm not so worried about him being cold because he's designed for the cold, but his he doesn't spend enough time outside. His feet aren't that tough. For myself, I had to figure out how to carry water because the challenge with this weather is that your bottles freeze, and typically in less than an hour, your any handheld is going to be frozen, and the bite valves freeze even faster on your packs. What I ended up doing was wearing my Aonji vest with the two 500 milliliter Bite valve bottles that sit like sort of mammary glands on the front. So I wore that under my outer layer. So I had my phone in an inner layer as well, so that wouldn't freeze. And it worked really well. The bite valves didn't freeze. I just unzipped my outer layer, get a drink, zip it back up. And I brought an old uh, Spring Energy Recovery Gel from my Ultra bag. You know, I have this bag where I keep all that Ultra stuff for. For things and so I brought that with me for fuel but when I opened it uh, at the halfway point it tasted like it had gone bad. So basically I had to run three hours in the cold with no fuel and my balaclava froze to my head but I got it done and I felt fine today. After the antibiotics and taking a week off I was noticeably chubby so I've been watching my food this week and I've already Knocked off five pounds. I also am taking a um, probiotic treatment. Uh, It's a five-day probiotic powder that's working really well. So today, we chat with our old friend, director of the Boston Marathon, Dave McGillivray. He is a case study in resilience and the power of a positive attitude. This pandemic knocked his business of race directing right out from under him and he had to pivot, and he did, and he's now running the vaccinations at Fenway and Gillette Stadium. And of course, we, all, we also sneak in some Boston Marathon talk. In section one, I'm going to talk about what to expect and how to counter the effects of aging as an athlete. And in section two, I will talk about work stress. Yeah, work stress, because I've had a really stressful couple of weeks of work. I got through it. Next week might be worse, might be better. I don't know, but I'll get through it. I try to show up with a positive attitude. I try to have empathy, and I try to lead as best I can. And I also know I'm not going to get everything done, but I make choices about what to get done and what not to get done based on what's important to me. Like getting my workouts in. That's important to me. Writing and communicating is important to me. You, you're important to me. We're in this together, right? That's what they keep telling me. Anyhow, on with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. The aging athlete. What's going on? What can we do about it? Well, I spend a lot of time, probably too much time, thinking about, no, worrying about what I'm still capable of as I get older. And what should I attempt? Is my brain writing checks that my body can't cash? And there's a few things going on here in parallel. One is that there is no stopping the aging process. I'm getting older, and the older I get, the more the aging process affects me. And I know it's a zero-sum game that ends in a dirt nap. But if I accept that aging process, how do I maximize my descent to get the most out of it? I still like doing what I do. I still get out and do stuff that 99% of the population doesn't. I guess what bugs me most is not the inevitability of this process, but the uncertainty of what's happening when. And I don't think it's that well studied. I think culturally, mine is among the first generations to keep trying to compete or excel at athletics as we age. I think before, people just got to 40 and stopped. Now we have entire generations of amateur athletes performing well into their 50s, 60s, and 70s. Are there any real barriers, or is it all just cultural nuance I'll give you an example. I was doing some research. I came across something that bothered me. A commonly quoted statistic is that you lose 10% of your max VO2 per decade after you turn 30. Really? So let's say one of the ways I measure max VO2 is by heart efficiency and how much volume or efficiency I can get out of my heart. And typically you do this by max heart rate. How high can you get your heart rate? My max heart rate was around 180 when I was in my 20s. So that means I'm going to drop to 162 when I'm 30, 145 when I'm 40, 131 when I'm 50, 118 when I'm 60. That's crazy. Someone doesn't understand how math works. If I look at what I've actually lost, if I'm using max heart rate as that measurement, over that time, it's more like 15 to 20% total. And what about pace? I've lost about a minute a mile over that same period and maybe more at shorter distances, but not much more. So something doesn't add up. I think they're just using rule of thumb here to their own detriment. So what do you lose when you age? Well, first you lose your max VO2. Your ability to convert oxygen to power over distance and time, through effort, that drops. Probably not 10% a year. I don't think any of this stuff is linear. I didn't lose much performance at all until I hit 50, and then it accelerated. Strength. You also lose strength. You start to lose muscle mass as you age. And again, I found this process barely noticeable until I turned 50. And in the last decade, I've probably lost 10 pounds of mass from muscles all over my body. Third thing, fast twitch. This one's tricky because I'm not sure whether it's a cause or an effect. As you age, you lose that fast twitch muscle. You can't hop around. Your stride is much less springy. What I call the pop. You lose the pop. But you also tend to do fewer activities that require fast twitch muscles. It may be a use it or lose it sort of scenario. Another thing you lose is flexibility. You definitely get tighter as you get older. Muscles, tendons, all that connective tissue, it shortens up. And again, it's not irreversible, but you have to work at it. Whereas when you were younger, it just was your normal state. And recovery. This is the big one for me. Your body's ability to bounce back takes longer. What does that mean? Well, when I was in my 20s, I could race on back-to-back days, and I'd feel it, but after I warmed up on that second day, I'd be fine. Now, I could still do it, but that second day, would be I'd be cranky from start to finish. I would never race out of that tiredness. And finally, the wear-out factor. There are pieces of the body that just wear out from use over time, hips, knees, etc. This wearing out of parts can be accelerated by overuse and abuse, but it's more likely just a weakness or an imbalance that you always had that manifests when you are out of warranty. So that's what's going on. You lose all this stuff at varying rates over time. And while this loss of ability is certain, there are two very important things I think we need to remember. And the first being it's nonlinear. There isn't this magic straight line loss of ability in any area year over year. Loss accelerates with age, I think, but it's never here today, gone tomorrow. It comes in waves. And the second thing I think we need to remember is that it's very, very specific to the individual. Everyone gets old, but we all know those people (laughs) who seem to defy the aging process, until they don't. I mean, my knees and hips are good, whereas many of those in my cohort are getting those bionic replacements installed. Everyone's different. So don't assume straight lines, averages, or rules of thumb. You don't know. You're you. Listen to your body, be present, be observant. So given all that, we're all driving down the same highway towards the big off-ramp. What can we do to counter the effects of aging? The counter actions address the specific losses. For max VO2 and fast twitch muscle loss, the experts recommend a healthy amount of fast twitch activities in your training. This is the use-it-or-lose-it factor. Tempo work, high-intensity training, shorter, faster stuff. Keep pushing your limits, and it'll keep that loss at bay. For your strength, you need to hit the weights. Strength training, heavier stuff, hard effort, that'll slow the muscle loss. Your body still responds to those challenges and builds muscle. You just have to keep at it. Flexibility? Yep, you guessed it. You have to work on your stretching more. Do your yoga. Keep those muscles pliable. Recovery? Yep, you got to make sure you're giving your body the rest and the fuel it needs to recover. Which leads to the next problem for the aging athlete. Time. If you look at all the stuff you need to do to stave off the aging process, you'll quickly see it's a full-time job. Do you really have four to six hours a day to stay competitive? I don't. The answer is to do the best you can and try to touch all the bases that you can a couple times a week so finally i'll i'll leave you with the answer the answer is that if you think you can you probably can if you can't so what what does it matter keep pushing keep smiling and ride that beast all the way down and now for today's featured interview So, David, good to see you. Give us the two hundred words on who you are and what you do, so people can remember. Well, in terms of uh, what we're doing
1: today, obviously, I've been putting on events for a better part of forty years. I've done over thirteen hundred road races and triathlons and charity walks and mass participatory events uh, and everything from the Boston Marathon, as you know, and Triathlon World Championship and U.S. Olympic Trials and all these events. And for me. When I started out way back when, it was interesting because people would always say to me, You do what? And I said, Well, I'm putting on road races. And I said, You really think you can earn a living putting yeah. on road races? And I said, Well, that's where you're wrong. I'm not just putting on road races. Oh, really? Then what are you doing? I said, I'm helping to raise the level of self confidence and self esteem of tens of thousands of people in America because yeah. that's what this does. Yeah. And yeah. they go, Oh, okay. And back then, we only had a few hundred people participating in events. And then philanthropy entered the sport, a greater purpose to do these things, and health and fit initiatives. And so then my races started selling out at record pace. And in March of last year, I was poised to have a banner year. We had 35 events, lock and loaded, all over the United States. Blue Ribbon events, too. This isn't they were your neighborhood iconic 5K. events. Yeah, they're not your humpty dumpty nursery school five K. It was big events. And I had the full staff and everything was just humming along nicely. And and I always pride myself on one thing that is being prepared. You know, I've always felt that the science of winning is being prepared. And unfortunately, I just wasn't prepared for this pandemic. I don't think anybody truly was. And I always thought our industry was bulletproof. And there was truly no kryptonite in our industry. And then along came this pandemic and it kind of proved me wrong. And events started just going over the cliff one by one. And I lost all 35 of them. Every one of them was canceled. And again, you have this sense of shock and what do I do now? Right. Um, but I, I think the thing that helped me more than anything is I kept it in perspective. Right. And I started thinking about all those people who truly were impacted by the pandemic and people were dying and people were sick. And and I'm like, okay, I lost some road races, but I'm healthy. My family's here. I'm doing okay. Don't be full of self-pity. But at the same time, we all live in our own world and I had to still figure it out. Like, how am I going to Make this all work, and I don't want to be denied. I don't want to give up, and right. so
0: we it's have. It's not to be... in your personality
1: type to roll. No, on. and I don't think it's in the personality of us boy. right? Yeah. I mean, and I compared it a little bit to what happened at Boston in 2013. I mean, very different experience, but similar kind of challenges in the sense of resilience and not being denied. And I've always felt the comeback is always stronger than the in the setback. And I said, there's always a way, there's always a path. And interestingly for me, you know, I had to lay people off, which was devastating in a sense of these people have been with me for 20, 30 years. And all of a sudden I have to say bye-bye. And that was just not a fun thing to do. I had to renegotiate a lot of my contracts with my uh, clients, the events, and yeah it, yeah, it was just really a tough experience, right? But then we started... Pivoting, in the word of the year, pivoting. And I started I started thinking about what's what truly are my assets? Right. What, what am I good at? What are we good at and what do we have? We know we don't have road races anymore for the time being. And we didn't actually lose our business. The business is still there, out there. We just lost permission <laughs> to yeah. put it on. Because unfortunately, what we do flies right in the face of the pandemic. We get as many people as we possibly can, get them all <laughs> together in a small space. They're all breathing on each other and sweating all over each other. And we're abruptly told, you can't do that anymore. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Well, if I can't do that, what can I do? And I, I really had a sense that our skill set was transferable. Then, yeah, we're good at managing people vision of it, something. You see an empty ball field, and how can I get 10,000 people through there? Things like that. So we started pivoting, and we started doing things like outdoor drive-in movie theater events. And then we started being contacted by outdoor drive-in graduation. So we started managing all these things. Right. And then we knew what of our assets was our equipment, our road race equipment, like barricades and cones, yeah. and sandwich boards and stuff. And so then we started contacting restaurants because they couldn't have indoor dining, so they had outdoor dining, and somehow they needed equipment to deal with outdoor dining. And then then all the testing for COVID started right. um, accelerating. And so we started managing COVID testing sites. Yep. And doing a whole bunch of those. And and of course, the rest of the industry was laser focused on virtual events.
0: Virtual events, yeah.
1: And and because we don't own any events we manage, we're a high Right. Gun. Right. So when races went virtual, they didn't really need me because they had digital people to manage yeah, that managed yeah. that. So I'm the boots-on-the-ground guy.
0: Virtual traffic guns are
1: free. Yeah, no, it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> so then I had to think outside the box and say, well, how can I enter the virtual experience And so I started doing different virtual events. Like I ran across America in 78, as you probably know. And and we did this run across America virtual event and other virtual events that no one else was doing. And that kept a pulse. Right. So we started doing that. So that brought us to almost where we are now. And then voila comes the vaccine and now the rollout of the vaccine. And that has become the number one story in this country. Is the rollout of the vaccine. Yeah. The fact that since it exists, we want to get it into as many people as that want it. Right. So we were contacted by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts saying, we know you have operational skills. We're going to stand up (laughs) a bunch of mass vaccination sites in the state, but we need people who know how to manage something like that. Well, I don't know anything about, I didn't, I do now, but I didn't then about the vaccine but I know how to manage sites and flows and all that. So we just got a bunch of our staff back together again and started doing that. And, yeah. and we're knee deep into that. Now we're into almost 12 hour days, seven days a week. We're helping to manage one at Gillette stadium. Right. Yeah. That's you're
0: pushing the, it through the stadium. Yeah. How the many stadium. people are you pushing through there in a day? Well, again,
1: it's one of those things where we don't want to bite off more than we can chew. It's a learning experience. So the first couple of days, it was only a couple of hundred. And then the next few days, there was a 500. And then we get up to a thousand and eventually we're going to get the 5,000 and then potentially 10,000 and who knows where it's going to go. Yeah, Right. So we're doing that at Gillette. And then we're standing up a second site um, next Thursday at Fenway Park. And then there are other sites around the state that that have been identified where they want to open up too. So So that's what we have pivoted into. And the storyline there is, Chris, is we were doing great. And then we got knocked to our knees. We were ready to fold our tent and go work at McDonald's, whatever. But then said, no, we're better than that. And then along came these other opportunities. And now we've come full circle where we're working these vaccination sites, which is both keeping people alive and keeping people healthy, while at the same time, we are helping ourselves to bring our own industry back. Yeah. Yeah. So what can be more important than the work we're doing now? Yeah. where only eight months ago, I was sort of full of self-pity and like, oh, woe is me. I can't believe I lost my business. And now... Probably doing the most important business that
0: we've ever done in the last yeah. Few years. Yeah, but I think like you were saying, you as a as an ultra runner in that kind of headset, and you've always impressed me because whenever I asked you what's your favorite thing, you always said the next thing. Right? Yeah, the so next that one. was always your focus. So I think just you being who you are, um probably helped you get through that the stages of grief, which is what you had to get through. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Denial, acceptance. Yeah. Right.
1: Well, that's how I even said that with my surgery, when I was diagnosed with severe coronary artery disease, I went through the five stages, like of death and dying. And again, you go through those five stages of denial, then anger, and then negotiation, right. and then depression. And then you get on with life. Right? And then you get on, acceptance, right? And that's what's going on here. Like, I can't believe this is happening to me. And then all of a sudden, oh, I'm mad that this is happening to me. Yeah. And then you start like negotiating like, well, maybe I can do this and maybe I can do that. And you don't know and it's all hitting the fan and everything's falling apart and you get kind of depressed. And then all of a sudden you go, you know, it is what it is. and I got to make the most of it. A lot of other people are going through a lot worse than I am. Put on your big boy pants.
0: Right. And like, let's go down this path now.
1: That's where we're at now.
0: Yeah. And then it becomes actually a challenge, right? Something good. Because you have yeah. a little bit of fear, a little bit of scarcity in your sales pitch. you got to close yeah. the deal, and yeah. you get out there and work it. But you're talking about those drive-in movie events. There was a point in, like, October, November where you could put on any event, yeah. and everybody would show, up, show right? up. People were so sick of being stuck get in Get out, the out house. of the house. Get out of the uh, house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, it's going to be interesting. People say, well, it's going to come back. Well, it is, but it's going to take a while. And it's not going to be the same. And yes, there's a lot more people out there running, walking, cycling, whatever, than ever before. So it seems, at least through by my front window, I'm seeing people yeah. I never even knew lived in my neighborhood going yeah. by like, well, where have you been for the last 20 years? So, yeah, I, like I said, I, I don't think we lost our business. We just lost the opportunity to produce events. But that will come back.
0: But it will be different. It will be different. And you talked about 2013. I think this is the same in that sense where it's we're going to be doing this stuff again, but it's going to be permanently changed.
1: Yeah. And coming out of 2013, we had the most epic Boston Marathon ever in 2014. Yep. But it was surrounded by this enhanced level of security that created certain inconveniences for the participants and we couldn't do everything we used to be able to do and people had to be checked and no backpacks and you know can't carry fuel belts and blah blah blah, all that stuff. But we got through it. And it just became the I hate the expression, but it became the new normal. And
0: that's what you're probably gonna see with this Come back this um, time. Yeah, there'll be something changed, something different. And yeah. It's interesting because I'm involved in Boston too, so I did my virtual Boston this year, right? Yeah, I ran 52 laps in my or 42 laps in the neighborhood. Wow. Yeah, nice. But it, it's uh, going forward. you know, are we gonna have a race this year? Well, the intent is that we want to.
1: Every day is an adventure with this virus. In terms of the next surge and the next surge and. The, variation of the virus and the rollout slow and it isn't as fast as people had expected. And so yeah, the and part and- of our planning is the uncertainty of what you're planning for. Yeah. So the intent is we want to put on an in-person event in the fall. We haven't committed to absolutely doing it, but the plan is to plan for one until yeah. such a time where we're either told or we come to the realization that this just isn't
0: working and then
1: we'll go virtual and look at 2022.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because for a while there last summer, it was like, oh, it's going to be over in three months or whatever. And everybody was sort of hedging, right? I know. Pushing everything by a week, by a week. And now everybody's just the opposite. They're like, nah, clear the calendar. Right.
1: (laughs) so, So did I. I did the same thing. I was, we're all saying in June, July, August of last year, can hardly wait till 2021, can hardly wait till 2021. And then we're knocking on the door at 2021, and I'm saying, it's not going to be any better. There's no spring events and most likely no summer events. So now we're just scraping at holding on to the fall. So if everything from the spring and the summer moves to the fall, oh my goodness, it's just going to be
0: chaotic. (laughs) Right. And then the other thing I was thinking about yesterday when I was out running was the qualification times. Right. Yeah. How do you manage qualifications? Now you're you're going to be two years in without a physical race. Right. Well, that's right.
1: And so you have to open up your qualifying window. And for the 2021 race, the qualifying window will
0: probably begin in 2018. Right. Because there weren't very many, if any. If you can roll it back to 2017, I got a good quote. Oh, there you go.
1: Okay, I'll do it just at Bay
0: State.
1: Same with me. I qualified there, too. But yeah, all those decisions need to be made relatively soon when we're going to open registration. What's the qualifying window? What's the field size? What's the composition of the field? Who are you allowing in? Who are you not allowing in? All that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, all that's being obviously discussed as we speak, but it's, it'll if, take a couple of years to stabilize.
0: Yeah. And you're going to have a different audience. And it's, yeah, it's, I think it's, I think it's going to be kind of a shift, right? Because yeah. you got people like me. I'm looking at am going, you know, I'm 20 plus years into this. Yeah. I'm not sure I want to do it anymore. Right. I understand. Yeah. I understand. You know, I got
1: to the point when everything was going over the cliff. I said, well, maybe this is a sign that it's time to. Move on to something else. I've been doing this for forty years, thirteen hundred events. I've done all the the Olympic Games, the Goodwill Games, the World Championships, the Olympic Trials, the Boston Marathon. What's left? And then I just said, Nah, this is just a labor of love. I just so love putting on events and seeing people accomplish their goals and go home feeling good about themselves. So I don't want to give this up.
0: What have you learned trying to do this vaccination uh, event? You giving medals out at the end? It's a good question, because we were actually thinking about doing something very,
1: because we not only want to just, even though it's the important part, just vaccinate people. We want to create an experience, too.
0: Yeah, why not,
1: right? No, why not, right? You're waiting in line for hours. You might as well, yeah. Right, so there has been discussion about giving them something as they walk out the door, and a medal has been brought up as a topic of discussion, and you don't want to kind of get too crazy with it, but at the same time, we want to make that experience the most positive one for yeah, these people. So. I
0: was just thinking Ashworth probably took it in the shorts. Uh he was one of the too. first ones to
1: email me when he heard I was doing the vaccination. He says, we could give everyone who got the vaccination a medal and now you're talking a hundred million people. <laughs> you know, like yeah. yeah that would be a pretty good order. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well local business support local businesses. Yeah. But they're good guys. They do, do good work. <laughs> good one. I mean, you don't want to order them from China. We'll get in trouble for that. But no, right. I, I, yeah. So this has um been a super interesting time for you the last like 5 years. I guess the last 10 years. I guess it's the old curse, right? May you live in interesting times. <laughs> so, uh, Yeah.
1: Yeah, a lot a lot for me personally, you know, with the surgery and trying to come back from that and then thinking I beat it. And then I went and did the World Marathon Challenge, the seven marathon, seven day, seven continent thing and came back from that. And then all of a sudden I could feel this discomfort again and went and got checked. And they said, hey, you have 90% blockage in your main artery. And I'm like, how did that happen? I thought I beat this. And, And then I didn't really have much of a choice. So Obviously, my health and family being the most important, but I also, we all have these goals and things that we do, and, and it's in our DNA. And so I wanted to continue running the marathon and ask the heart surgeon before he did the surgery, I said, in six months, there's this yeah. little race in Boston. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I think I told you this story, and he gave me the best possible answer. He, said, he didn't say, no, I couldn't do it, or yes, I could. He just said, I'd be extremely disappointed if you couldn't do it. And that just gave me hope that I could have the surgery and recover in enough time to train enough yeah. to get myself across the finish line. And I did for the 47th time. And yeah. and then last, this past year, did the virtual also for my 48th. So I'm looking forward to the next couple of years to get my 50th Boston in. If God willing,
0: 50th uh, Boston. Wow. That's something. How many yeah. of you guys are there? So it's got to be less than 10. Uh, well, over 50, there's only two right now. It's only two right now. Okay. Two.
1: Yeah. So there's one other gentleman that has 49 now. So
0: if he does this year, he'll have 50. So there'll be three. And then I'm fourth. All right. Well, good on you. So what's your big takeaway from this? What'd you learn from all this in the last year?
1: I've learned that um, my adage now is the comeback is always stronger than the setback. Right. And there's always going to be challenges and hurdles in life and setbacks. But I think the idea is to keep the faith And I learned this as a young kid that I always wanted to be a professional athlete, but I was always the last pick and the last one cut. And I learned about rejection at an early age. But I also learned that if you're passionate enough and determined enough, there's always a path. So, and this is just another one, right? In my life, I talk about in my motivational speaking presentation, the title is defining moments. There are defining moments in all our lives. And We all experience them and some are good Mm -hmm. defining moments and some at the time aren't so good. And so it's just a matter of how you process them and how you deal with them. And here's another one for all of us, a defining moment in our lives with this pandemic. And we can give into it. or We can figure out ways around it. And what we're doing now is not going to be forever. Eventually, we're going to get back to what we normally do. But this is just bridging the gap.
0: Yeah. And uh, I said something similar to a couple of weeks ago where I said, you know, you can't control what happens, but you can control how you...
1: How you, react to it, to it. Right? Right. how you
0: show up yeah and if you're in having these kind of challenges internally then it's really important for you to show up because that means everybody else is having it too <laughs> right can. exactly so all right well it's always a pleasure right. to talk to you same chris do you have any yeah. uh links or anything you want to push out there to the world Somebody um, needs a motivational speaker <laughs> at the bon mitzvah I can send it to you but all right I'm good at the moment yeah Thank you. All right. Good luck with the vaccines. I think they'll all be right. getting to, to my age group by July. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I hope we can just roll it out as quickly as possible so everyone
1: can feel that they were treated fairly and, and that they're safe. So that's yep. all right. Stay all
0: positive. Right. Keep up care, the good work. Bye. All right. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Sometimes
1: it takes a third party to tell us what we already know.
0: Surviving work stress. Overall, the last several months have been stressful for people for many reasons. Pandemics, politics, and so many other things banging on the outside of our fragile shells. But I want to talk to you today about work stress, because those of us lucky enough to still have jobs are still expected to work. This came to mind because last week I had a very stressful week. I had Multiple executive engagements that I was responsible for setting up, responsible for preparing for, delivering, and facilitating. At the same time, I had customers that were on fire for various reasons and unhappy. On top of that, I had internal organizational expectations. Any of these things wouldn't be enough to knock me out of my comfort zone. But altogether, in the same week, they rung up a significant amount of stress in the process of the week, I had to deploy extraordinary strategies and tactics to stay afloat. And I went through a range of emotions, fear, uncertainty, doubt, resignation, exhaustion, cynicism, and ultimately commitment and acceptance. I got through it. There are some things I could have done better. There are some things I could have done worse. I picked a line and I stuck to it (laughs) through to the end. And at one point, I was wondering why even bother working? Why not just walk away? So, let's talk through what work stress is all about and some strategies to deploy when you find yourself in the thick of it. First, what's going on with work stress? Work stress is the manifestation of your fight or flight response. As humans, on a basic level, we see these things the big meeting, the angry customer as threats. Our bodies prepare to fight or flee. The chemistry in our bodies change. The hormones are secreted. Heart rate increases. That stress brings heightened awareness and a ready state. Unfortunately, we rarely need to actually fight anyone or flee anyone at work. Even though we sometimes want to. All the extra stress hormones can help us get things done in the short term, but lead to burnout in the long run. It's like running your engine at a high RPM for too long. And I know when I looked in the mirror midweek, I could see the stress in the bags under my eyes. There are physical and mental repercussions of work stress. Physically, you feel exhausted, but you may have trouble sleeping. Mentally, You feel overworked, unsafe, you have anxiety, and this leads to an inability to focus and reduces your ability to think clearly and creatively. And eventually, chronic stress could lead to depression. So how do we adapt to these stress periods at work? The first thing I find useful is to be able to contextualize. Not every week is loaded like this. I knew it was coming so I was able to do some preparation. I also know from experience that for every high-stress week, there's probably a correspondingly low-stress week somewhere. And just like in a long race, you have to take the long view and understand at times it will get hard, but you will get through. And anything you can do to plan ahead for these events or periods that you know are going to be stressors, Gives you the upper hand by putting you in control. Anything you can do to take the stress events out of your dinosaur brain and into your thinking brain will help you contextualize. When you feel yourself falling into a stressful period, try to be aware. Step back and notice what's happening in your brain and your body. Even take a minute to write it down. I feel X when I am confronted by Y. Just by elevating into your conscious, and out of your subconscious, much of the stress may go away. Now, my stressful periods tend to come in waves, and that helps me put it in context and deal with it. It's a short sprint. If you have the opposite, where it's constant and consistent, you may need to engineer in your own breaks. These could be actual days off, or simply taking the time to walk the dog outside for 20 minutes in the fresh air, after that hard call with the customer, to let your brain settle. One of the things that stresses me out is open loops. Open loops are when I know I have things that I haven't finished. I have an overhang of tasks or deliverables. These open loops get my brain playing a Tetris game that can't be solved. There are two main strategies you can deploy when you have more tasks than you can accomplish leading to these open loops. First is to become good tactically managing and prioritizing tasks. Efficient task management won't solve the problem, but can help quantify and prioritize. And this puts you back in control and allows you to make decisions around what to do next and what not to do. And the second strategy is simply to realize that you are not perfect. You are not going to get everything done every day. Have good guardrails and know when to lay down your tools and walk away for your own mental health. Cut yourself some slack. Do the best you can in the time you have. Let the rest go. I walked into an internal meeting on Friday this week and had to say, I'm sorry, I'm going to fall on my sword. I did not get anything done on this project because I had the week from hell. Because at the end of the day, part of what makes you valuable is your ability to choose what's more important. Make those decisions. Because if you don't, you fail at everything. Choose what you're not going to do. The next thing I want to give you is the importance of leadership. And I've said this a lot in the last year. You can't always choose what's happening, but you can choose how you show up. When you go into these stressful events, understand that the people on the other end of the Zoom camera are probably just as stressed out as you are. Have empathy, be present, and think, how am I going to lead? Many people like to turn their cameras off because they don't like to look at themselves. I leave it on so I can see my posture and see my body language. I always take these hard meetings standing up. I can use physical triggers To change my state. If I see I'm slouching or looking like a kick dog, I can change that. I can straighten up, pull my shoulders back, take a deep, slow breath, and look into the camera. And I think, how can I be a leader here? How can I be present? How can I have empathy? And just by noticing what's going on, by reading the body language and being present, you're being a positive leader. You can switch. From just being able to survive the call to leaning in and trying to help. How you behave when you're stressed out is important. Because when we feel anxious, we are more likely to behave badly, to snap and cut people off, to engage in gossip and gripe sessions, and none of that does you any good. Recognize it for what it is and do the opposite. Of course, all the classic mindfulness practices can help. Physical relaxation techniques and exercise can help. I let relaxing music play in the background in my Zoom calls. They can't hear it, but I can, and it helps define my state. And finally, it's really good if you can build a support network. And this may be people that you work with. It may be family. But if you're going to talk about stressful work issues, you probably want to avoid coworkers and family. Build a network of third-party friends who you can trust because it helps to talk it out and get ideas. When you do talk to your coworkers, be kind. Be empathic. Ask them how they're doing. Ask if you can help. It's a struggle sometimes, but you can get through it unscathed. Just have a little flexibility and a little practice. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have lined up in the parking lot between the barriers to get our shots through the end of episode 4-448 of the Run Run Live podcast. So I watched a show I've been waiting for called The Dig on Netflix. It just came out on the 29th and I watched it. I was excited to see it because I'm a big history buff. And if you don't know, The Dig is a period piece about the excavation of an Anglo-Saxon burial ship in Sutton Hoo on the coast of Suffolk in England. And I won't disparage. I won't complain. I won't talk down this program, but I was hoping for more archaeology. And it turns out it's more like, you know, the English patient. Lots of feelings, relationships, very little actual Anglo Saxon. They don't even show the helmet or mention King Raidwald. So if you're into British period dramas, go for it. If you like archaeology, not so much. The other wonderful thing I've found in the last couple of weeks are some very entertaining science fiction podcasts. Since and you all know how much I love short form science fiction. And since I have my own science fiction ish podcast, now the other podcast, After the Apocalypse. Uh, I've got eight episodes up, go listen through, which, uh, by the way, you should go like it and comment and remember, you know, I need that help. I did some searching and I found some other science fiction podcasts to listen to. There are three that I've been listening to on my runs. The first is Asimov's Science Fiction Podcast And that reads stories from Asimov's Magazine. The second is Lightspeed Podcast, another science fiction story podcast. And finally, my favorite is Clark's World Science Fiction Podcast. And I think I like that one the most because the editor always sounds exhausted and makes mistakes and doesn't fix them. I like that. (laughs) So the links are all in the notes. And they're all nice little 20 to 30 minute chunk size stories. Perfect company for running in the dark, snowy trails. Some are better than others. The good ones make the so so ones worth it, you know? Other than that, I'm working my way through a Jimmy Buffett novel called A Salty Patch of Land, which is refreshingly easy to digest. A bit of a palate cleanser, so to speak. Cowboys, boats, lighthouses, typical breezy Jimmy Buffett style. Cringeworthy at times, but unapologetic. And the funny thing about this, I bought it used, like I do all my books, and there's a wedding photo in the book, right? A real, like, full-size wedding photo. And it's not, you know, the bride and groom are in it, but it's like 30, 35 people all lined up in the wedding party. And you can kind of, it looks like it's maybe mid-90s, and you can kind of, you know, look through and see, that's the father, that's the mother, that's the cousin, that's the little sister. It's kind of cool. Um, So, yeah, that's my book marker for that book. And that's all I have for you this week. Decent week. Days are getting longer, faster now. Four plus minutes a day. The vaccinations are rolling out. We might even be getting on an airplane and getting back out into the world soon. Stay warm. Stay strong. Be a leader. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought. That he
1: just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.